0: Previously on BETA. What we need is an anti-static workstation.
1: Come then with me, and I will lead you into the dwelling
2: place of evil itself.
3: We partners, we brothers, and we friends.
2: Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to BETA from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, visual artist Christine Potter reflects on the haunting reality the compelling subgenre of murder
4: ballads.
0: I chose ballads where this gendered violence occurred, where a man has killed a woman for whatever inconvenience she's representing to him and his life.
2: Also, film critic Walter Chow returns for another episode of Walter on Walter. This time, he explores the Walter Hill film
3: 48 Hours, starring Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte. It's a lot of things, but a comedy, it's not. And a movie about friends, it's not. And I think, you know, again, Hill's movies are misremembered in the the rear view because they, they sort of push that pleasure center. But first...
4: The black hole hovers above the empty seat to my left. A dark heat emanates from its center. A metallic smell overtakes me the scent of outer space. No one else can see the black hole. It is mine and mine alone. It always has been. Ma'am, I need a dollar, a voice calls over my music. A man stands in the aisle, faded brown suit, too old to blend in here, his eyes bloodshot from age or drink. I don't have any cash, I say. Nothing? Come on. The black hole expands and rotates clockwise. I'm really sorry, I say.
2: That's Sarah Rose Etter reading an excerpt from her book, Ripe. It's a surreal novel about a young woman named Cassie who is working at a Silicon Valley startup. She was hoping it would be her dream job, but it turns out to be a nightmare. Cassie has to deal with long hours and toxic bosses. She's also dealing with a mysterious black hole inside her. In Ripe, Sarah draws on her personal experience working in tech to ensure that she gets all the details right. I had to ask her how similar Sarah's own work experience is to Cassie's.
4: I would say her experience is really a composite of things I've seen in tech, not necessarily for companies where I work, but from stories I've heard. You know, it's kind of taking all the worst things that you've seen and combining it into one company. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, it's, it's really a composite. I think this book, rather than being based on my quote unquote reality, is really making sure that it's based on the truth of tech and also just business in general. I mean, honestly, most of these are not new behaviors. They've just taken different shape. You know, we're kind of in this era of conspicuous consumption where for the first time people are hiding wealth and status. And so that always fascinates me because it's really the same sort of behaviors. It's just dressed up as a company that's your friend. It's low key, it's casual, but all of the same things are sort of happening under the surface.
2: Mm-hmm. You're originally from Pennsylvania. What, what did you think when you first moved to San Francisco? you would probably already been there, but when you actually made the move, the commitment to live there, what, what was that like for you?
4: I think that part of my experience and Cassie's do intertwine where I thought I was making this huge life change and things were going to be improved. And sort of shortly after I got there, it became clear that it was much more complicated than that. It's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful city. And I think all the time, like everyone in San Francisco must hate me (laughs) right now, (laughs) because if if you wrote this book about Philadelphia, would I be mad? Maybe, you know, but would I also acknowledge like my city is flawed? I, I think I would be able to say that that is true. It's complicated. I remember my first day walking to the train to go to work. I stopped in a coffee shop and the owner of the coffee shop was there and she was pouring me coffee and she looked very shaken and she was sort of warning me about San Francisco and saying, it's difficult here. And I was like, well, I'm from Philadelphia. I can handle anything. And she told me that the night before a man had set himself on fire outside of the coffee shop and that she had to try to put him out it was such a strong foreshadowing that it was almost over the top um, because it broke my heart and it was sort of that first warning that the city might not have been what i thought it was going to be which you know what we all imagine california to be it's the gold rush it's idyllic it's you know this place where you're going to find security and become wealthy and all these things
2: Mm -hmm. another possible warning for you was probably the homeless man who lived uh, who lives outside cassie's window because that's that was a real-life experience for you, wasn't it?
4: Yeah, absolutely. That was really... I don't think I realized how much it impacted me until I moved away and I went to sleep the first night. And I realized that for the last year, it had really kept me awake. Even though I felt like I was sleeping, there it was sort of this cheap sleep because you just hear someone in so much pain. Um, and, you know, it's complicated there, too, because there's not much you can do to help someone in that scenario. You're not going to call the police, obviously. And you can leave money and you can leave food but you know what am i doing really to help someone and we really were sort of twined together in this way um and it wasn't bearable to hear someone in that much pain and not really be able to do anything
2: Mm -hmm. yeah i can imagine it would be you moved from san francisco to los angeles and you still work in tech is it Mm -hmm. a better work environment than your silicon valley gig
4: absolutely i did find a very people first tech company and i think it takes a lot. You have to kiss a lot of frogs, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I, I do talk about this. It's you decide to work for a company based on, you know, how many hours of interviews and you can't really know what's going on until you get in the door, especially with tech, especially when it's so much proprietary stuff and you're not really sure what they're doing with data or, you know, you can't really fully understand the culture until you're there. And I think this was a good example of that.
2: Yeah, definitely. One of the things that makes Cassie different from everyone else is her miniature black hole. What is the origin story of this black hole that is always with her?
4: I think the black hole for her represents depression. And I wanted to personify this human emotion that can take on so many shapes and forms and For the reader, I hope it can mean anything, whether maybe you struggle with anxiety or anger issues or, you know, whatever we're all trying to manage every day as we go to work, as we make money. The Black Holes were meant to be a stand-in for that. And of course, it was the hardest part to write because we don't fully understand Black Holes in regular life, let alone turning it into this sort of fictional element. Uh, So I think if you've asked me how many times I had to revise that area. <laughs> I would say it's a lot. But yeah, I do feel like a little bit of an expert in black holes now. Like if you sent me to a black hole convention, I think I could talk like in the basement. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to <laughs> ask you about that. So what
2: what would you, can you give us an example of what you would say? What knowledge you would share about black holes?
4: I think the most fascinating thing to me is the research was so ongoing that I would rewrite the ending of the book a lot because during the time we were sending it to the printer They were starting to make new discoveries and that's when they discovered that there were potentially wormholes in the Mm. black holes. And that really changed the whole ending, right? Because it suddenly went from, oh, she's going to be ripped to shreds in this black hole to, hey, there's actually another option. I don't know. I read so much research. It's hard to say. There was one really nice academic paper that I read about the way we personify black holes since we can't understand them. We have to use language like they spit or they uh, consume or they, you know, ingest, they they always have to be doing something that feels human to us because we really can't understand them. It's one of the only things in science that has that, where we have had to give it a layman's term and try to make it understandable just to a regular person. So that part always fascinates me.
2: Mm-hmm. And I understand that the black hole was a symbol of your grief. Can you tell us about that?
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I really don't know if I would have written this book. I thought to myself that San Francisco has kind of been done to death. There's been a ton of tech books, you know, so it's not usually my wheelhouse. But when I lived in San Francisco, I used to call my father all the time and he would talk me through my struggle with the city and with the industry. And he kept asking me to write a book about it. And so he passed away shortly before we went into lockdown. And I really found myself just with my grief and very isolated. And so I fell into this book as a way to sort of remember him. And so the parts about the father in the book are certainly the things about him I wanted to remember.
2: Mm-hmm. And I'm very sorry for the loss of your father. He sounds like he sounds like a really great guy. I love that he would say to you every time you called him from San Francisco, he'd say, "Write all this down. One day you're going to write a novel, and you're going to make a million dollars."
4: I didn't make a million dollars, but I did. I did okay this time.
2: <laughs> well, there's still time. I mean, the book just recently dropped in the UK, and some people, you know, they, yeah, they, yeah, it's still quite possible. Cassie's mother is not as supportive as her father. And if you don't mind my asking, is that what your real life mother is like?
4: I think that part is more for the character. I, I always say this when I write a book. There are certain pages where I'm on the page directly and there are other pages where it makes the most sense for the character. And I didn't really see this as someone who had two perfectly supportive parents or someone who came from a perfect marriage. And I think that's actually a reckoning a lot of us are having. You know, most of us come from a time where, you know, it didn't, people didn't go to therapy. They didn't go to couples counseling. They didn't work through stuff like this. And so I had this theory that in your 30s is when you start to look at all the structures that formed you and start to ask questions about them, right? Like just because the biggest model I had of a marriage was my parents, does that mean it's the right model? You know, just because my family taught me that if I got this job and I went to school, I would be able to own a house and I would be secure, maybe that's not true anymore. And it really isn't. And so there of course needed to be something in the family that offered a friction. I don't think she would work as a character if she just had come from a perfect family where everyone loved her and supported her. Um, So, you know, I think there is definitely tension there.
2: Yeah. And you need that tension. You want that conflict uh, for, for, for dramatic purposes. Yeah, definitely.
4: Yeah. And honestly, it could have just as easily been, you know, the father who was, a, you know, not the best at loving her the way she needed to be loved. Um, in this case, for me, this is where the personal kind of crosses the art is, you know, I wanted to remember my dad. And I, I kept thinking every day that I was like losing memories of him. And so the only way that I could think to kind of preserve him was to put him in the book
2: hmm I was surprised to learn that you're a big believer in outlining. So many writers, it seems to me, don't want to know where the story is going because they want that surprise element while they're writing. But you feel that you have to outline your books. Why?
4: I think part of that is having a full-time job, and I don't want to spend 10 years on a book that's never going to get published. In terms of, like, quote-unquote, ambition... Mine is not to be famous or make money, but I do want to finish books. <laughs> you know, that that matters to me. <laughs> and so since I'm pretty short on time, if I don't outline, I will be spinning my wheels. And I think people get really hung up on the idea of outlining as it being final. And it's really not the case. In fact, the outlining means that during the editing process, I'm playing around with parts of the story that are the most important, like the ending, like how the black hole functions. But we don't need to, during editing, go back and gut major plot points. We need to have some basic stuff in place in order for the editing process to actually be meaningful so that we can get down to the sentence level. Right? Ultimately, I need to go from you know the macro to the micro. And if it's not outlined in some fashion, it's just going to take me forever to get there. And so... I don't mean to say anything I outline is set in stone, but I need to have the major beats there so that when my agent's looking at it, when my editor's looking at it, their feedback is way more strategic or it's way more focused on the line level versus this whole character isn't working.
2: Sure, that makes total sense. You've said that you want to leave space for the reader to show up. I love that sentence, that thought. How how do you do that?
4: I think you have to... Let the surrealist element do that. If you think about surrealism as an art form, it's almost more important what the viewer sees in the artwork than what the intention of the artist was. And I do want some of that in my book. People always say, How do you think the ending, like, what was the ending? And I'm like, I don't care what the ending was for me. I know what it was for me, but I'm far more interested in how the reader sees it ending. And the same is true for the black hole or, you know, the knot in the Book of X. I'm much more interested in how the reader engaged with those elements than what my intention was. Whenever I teach, I kind of give this example. If I say there's a woman named Debbie, she's a mother of seven, she drives a minivan, she is wearing, you know, a dress that's a little too big for her, and she's, you know, 48 versus I just say the word mother. And all of a sudden all of the word, all of the things you associate with the word mother can show up. Because mother to you signifies a very certain set of habits and emotions and histories and memories. And so I think I'm trying to play with that a little bit.
2: Hmm. I was intrigued to discover that you don't consider your competition to be other writers or other books. So what do you see as your competition?
4: Twitter, Netflix, your phone going off. I mean, it's really we're in an attention economy at this point. And so I do think every page of a novel has to be doing something. I Sometimes in my head, I think of it as like acrobatics on the page. I need to be doing mm. one really cool trick on every page. <laughs> or you have every reason to just not read. You know, like it's, it's silly to think of myself in competition with other writers because as we all know, people don't read a lot. And so my competition is the real world and a million devices and the fact that you have to actually invest hours in order to read a book. And so, you know, I do try to play to the reader's attention span so that it feels, I mean, people have jokingly called this a beach read and I kind of laugh about it because it's a sad book for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did try to pace it in a way that the reader would be compelled to finish it. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: And you definitely did that, I think. So when Netflix comes calling to ask you to turn Ripe into a streaming series, that means you'll be competing against yourself. How will you handle that?
4: (laughs) I'm not having those conversations until the strike is over. (laughs) Okay, fair enough.
2: (laughs) Good answer. Sarah Rose Etter, thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations on Ripe. It's a fantastic, one-of-a-kind novel. And congratulations on everything coming up, Etter. It's very well deserved.
4: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate your great questions.
2: Sarah Rose Etter is the author of the novel, Ripe. Find out more about Sarah and Ripe at wpr.org slash beta.
0: But I think I was also sort of interested in creating a sequence in the book that maybe put you into um, the position of one of these women in the
2: murder ballads. Coming up, Christine Potter joins us to talk about her haunting photographs and their connection to murder ballads. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Have you ever heard of a murder ballad? You're hearing one right now. So I poisoned that Murder ballads arrived in the U.S. during the 1700s and 1800s from Scotland, Ireland, and Britain. As their name would suggest, these songs are ballads about violence. I should offer a quick warning here that the following segment contains content that may upset some listeners. Murder ballads were shared over the years with lyrics that have been repurposed to reflect images of the Deep South. The award-winning photographer and artist Christine Potter has released a book called Dark Waters. Christine's powerful black and white photos capture the haunting backdrops of murder ballads and feature a dark Southern Gothic vibe. Beta Steve Gotcher was curious about what inspired her to use her photographic skills to create such disturbing images.
0: Probably two years ago, I started putting the images in sequence and thinking about ways of dealing with the fact that music was such a, a like sort of integral component to the way i was thinking about work and i can't easily integrate music into the book form so lots of work went into just trying to find the right rhythm the right sequence and the right integration of text i started with the landscape i was thinking about the history of violence in the southern landscape and sort of the cultural tendencies here the Southern Gothic tendencies um, in literature and cinema, which you know often portray these kind of dark macabre sort of things happening in the south and I I first started by moving through the landscape, sort of asking myself the question whether an echo of the violence that has happened here was perpetrated here, whether that still lives in the landscape today, whether we're kind of affected by it. Of course, there's landscape everywhere, so I had to come up with some architecture to be in a particular place. So I thought, well, I'm gonna follow bodies of water that have violent names. And, you know, the provenance of those names are often not known, but things like Murder River or Bloody Creek, for me, that was just like sort of an architecture to put me in a place and to begin making pictures. The Murder Ballad thread came in about a year later, and it felt wholly related to this question I was asking myself about sort of the cultural tendencies in the South for writing certain kinds of stories making certain kinds of films and you know storytelling in song as a component of that
2: Please tell me
1: her head. Tell me What is the connection between the song lyrics you chose and the images in the book?
0: It's loose. I mean, one of the challenges of integrating text and image is that our instinct as readers is always to read the text as some sort of caption, that there is this like sort of one to one relationship between the image and the text. And. For me, uh, it was almost a reason to not include the lyrics because I didn't want that sort of one-to-one relationship. I chose ballads where this gendered violence occurred, where a man has killed a woman for whatever inconvenience she's representing to him and his life. And, you know, I just took excerpts from those ballads and, and kind of tucked them in to the sequence of the images, sort of reminding you, I guess, of the potential in the landscape, reminding you of what we carry psychically in our minds, uh, women, the potential for violence, and hopefully not drawing too too direct a relationship between any one photo and the, the lyrics part of what I hope people realize, even in spite of the fact that these ballads feel of another era, is that these stories are still incredibly contemporary.
1: We went to take an evening walk about a mile from town. I picked a stick above the ground and knocked that fire girl down. Your uh, photographs depict landscapes in the southern United States. It seems that it sort of helps perpetuate a stereotype of the violent South, but also violence against women happens everywhere.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's all true. I do tend to work regionally, just as a matter of practicality. (laughs) I was toying with, like, stereotypes and the myths that we tell ourselves. So that's always a component for me and whatever I'm doing. And so when I decided to work in the South, I mean, part of it was that I grew up here. And I thought, wow, I spent a lot of time trying to get out of the South as a young person. And I did for you know, 20, 25 years, but I'm back now. And I kind of thought I was ready to, I don't know, sort of investigate those ideas, um, some of which are stereotypes for sure. But, you know, it it is also true, like uh, statistically true that there is more violence perpetrated in the American South than anywhere else in the country. And and that may just be as simple as, like, it's more populated than other areas of the country. It could It could be that simple, but I don't think it's quite that simple.
1: Right, right. Interesting. Many of your photos make it difficult to tell exactly what's going on, what we're looking at, especially as we get toward the middle of the book. How does this relate to murder ballads? And what was your goal in in kind of putting all that sort of in the middle?
0: Yeah, I mean, there is a chapter, well, I mean, I guess I could call it some, something of a chapter in the middle that becomes very disorienting. Part of that is experiential, you know, looking at water. It's never twice the same. <laughs> it's really deep, or it's really reflective. And, you know, if you look at it, It can be disorienting, but I think I was also sort of interested in creating a sequence in the book that maybe put you into um, the position of one of these women in the murder ballads, imagining a tussle in the landscape where I'm seeing up and then I'm seeing down and then I'm, you know, I'm kind of falling sideways and then maybe I'm in the water looking straight up at the sky These are sort of like embedded reasons in like creating relationships between pictures. It doesn't have to be how you read it, but I'm interested in the fact that you notice that. I think that that gives me some pleasure that maybe, you know, sometimes these little Easter eggs um, really do work. I was thinking about like, you know, what does it look like when you're being dragged through the forest or when you're being knocked down or when you're being submerged.
1: Yeah. And that's the feeling I got as I went through it. And suddenly I'm plunged into this world of, I don't know what's up, what's down, what's sideways. What are some of the images that reflect the theme of your book that you like the most?
0: You know, what's funny is the very first picture in the book, the picture you see before you even get to the title page was a total outlier. One of those pictures that I liked, but I couldn't figure out how it fit. I have dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of those. But that particular picture is of a woman seated in the forest. Her hair is wild and long and her eyes are closed. To me, it somewhere in the editing of this book, it became one of the most important pictures. And the reason I put it at the beginning of the book is it's, um, I want you to enter through her thoughts. Um, You see a woman engaged entirely in her own experience. She's not looking at you. She's looking inward, if you will. And for me, what became clear in the editing is as much as I was talking about real places and you know real stories that have been written and sung and celebrated i'm also actually talking about women's sort of psychic weight the stories we carry that we've been told our whole lives which inform the way we move through the world and so for me it's yeah maybe that picture has become one of the more important when it w- when it was almost entirely edited out for you know for a long time which is how it goes.
1: I'm a music programmer, and I find it really challenging to play murder ballads on my shows, mainly because of the graphic and brutal content. But then I look at some of the people who perform them, like Joan Baez, Dolly Parton, Nora Jones, and I wonder why I feel so uneasy about the songs. Uh, Do you think that murder ballads have a place in art?
0: I think art deals with the full human experience. And this is part of, you know, violence is certainly part of the human experience. It's inextractable from from life. Yeah, I certainly am not proposing any censorship, but I do recognize the dis-ease we feel when kind of confronted with it in a certain context, like song. That feels in a way so much less easy to consume than watching it on a television.
1: You print song lyrics in the book with specific phrases, still readable, but lined out. Why are those particular phrases chosen? Why did you do it that way?
0: Circling back to your discomfort in playing murder ballads or feeling like you have to acknowledge the violence in a way or refute it in a way, It's the same instinct I have in the book. And I thought, am I just perpetuating this violence by, you know, writing these lyrics? What is my role here? And working with my editor, Leslie Martin at Aperture and our designer, Julia Schaefer, we went through dozens of ideas of how to respond to that violence in a sophisticated way, in a knowing way, and also with purpose. So the phrases that are crossed out are the overt acts of violence. There's kind of a strike through in them. And that's me sort of disempowering those words, acknowledging them, but disempowering them at the same time. And That was the last option we landed on, and we all felt like it kind of handled all of those needs in a way that also let the violence, you know, you can see through that line to read the text.
1: The women in the photos appear to be apprehensive in a lot of cases, yet very defiant, as if they may be frightened, but they will not submit to their fate. You staged those photos, I assume?
0: Yeah, those are those are the only well, they're almost the only element of the book that's really staged. They're made in a studio and the women are wet and you know, we have to use strobe lights. So yeah, it's all very orchestrated, but inside of that orchestration there's also things I can't predict, you know, gestures or expressions that I can't you know, totally tell them to do. So, you know, there's still a lot of exploration for me there photographically. But yes, I mean, we spoke a little bit about defiance, but also fear and power.
1: Right. There's one photograph that I assume is a candid shot, maybe it's not, of two men fishing. Tell me a little bit about that photograph.
0: Yeah, I mean, that picture was made very quickly. It's on the periphery of Noose River in North Carolina. So that was a name that sort of compelled me to walk along the banks. And, you know, it is true that in a lot of these stories, it is fishermen who end up finding the bodies two boys went
4: out fishing find somebody they saw
0: So in a way, that was like my that was like the entry point for sort of including it in the edit. I didn't know. Again, you know, I make a lot of pictures and and, you know, finding the thread that joins them is sometimes obvious and sometimes really tangential. But I think the initial thought was who is down by the river? There's always a guy down by the river. And there's usually a couple guys down by the river. And me as, you know, a person walking along rivers, like I'm, I'm also experiencing that coming upon a man or two men down by the river and what they're doing may feel totally innocuous or it may feel threatening. And I think both of those are kind of in the book.
1: It's also interesting that the photograph upon a glance, you could say that the the black male is being subjugated by the white male, that he may be... Um, brutalized in some way and then again you look again and you see that the one man is helping the other man bait a hook but there's so much subtlety in that shot that if you sit and think about it for a long time and given the context of the book in general it seems ominous the first time you look at it for sure.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's the ambiguity at play. I'm not interested in making really didactic pictures. And so part of the power of that picture is its capacity to play both ways. Women aren't the only people who feel unsafe in this landscape. And I try to make that very clear. I'm telling one story here and it feels very binary, but I'm incredibly aware that it isn't just me and it isn't just people like me.
1: What do you want people to understand about the topic you're trying to convey here in this book? What do you want people to come away with?
0: I want it to offer an experience. I want people to reflect on the beauty and the possible fear that can exist simultaneously. I want people to consider the commodification and celebration of violence against women. I want them to consider the sort of contemporary circumstance of that and how we participate in it, and also to consider there could be different outcomes to those stories.
1: Christine Potter, thank you so much for talking to us today. Your book, Dark Waters, is a fascinating, brilliant work of art.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate this conversation. Thank you.
2: Christine Potter is a visual artist and the creator of the book, Dark Waters. She spoke with Steve Gotcher. Find out more about Christine and her photographs at wpr.org slash beta.
3: I think what you get in Walter Hill's films is a guy who's very open-eyed, very clear-eyed about the way that the world is.
2: Coming up, film critic Walter Chow joins us for another episode of Walter on Walter. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio.
4: Warriors, come out to
2: play. I want the rest of you cowboys and know something. There's a new sheriff in town.
1: Try it again, Punk. Well, you or me, Montana. I'm money'd be on you.
2: That audio logo means it's time for another edition of Walter on Walter with Walter Chow. Chow is a film critic and the author of a Walter Hill film. Today, we're discussing the 1982 trailblazing film, 48 Hours. Starring Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte, the film is thought by many to have popularized the buddy cop genre, but Chow says that there's more to the movie than that. He says that it has a lot of hallmarks of Walter Hill's films. 48 Hours looks at the destructive nature of toxic masculinity and the ugly truth about racism in America. Chow said that 48 Hours resonated with him deeply because he not only saw it while he was very young, but that the film opened a doorway to dealing with the racism he himself
3: faced. I was terrified of it in a lot of ways because I knew that it was forbidden. You know, we, we... as was sort of the ritual, I, you know. I don't know if you were engaged in this sort of low-level criminality, but we would always buy tickets for uh, PG-rated movies, whatever the Disney re, uh, re-release was, or whatever. We would buy those tickets because we were allowed to. And then we would sneak into the R-rated theaters, mm-hmm. and it, it was uh, already terrifying because when you're a kid, you think there are actually consequences. You don't realize that the people working in theaters are often, you know, just teenagers uh, who are sick of you and don't really want to deal with you anyway. <laughs> they wouldn't care if you went in there. So it already had the element of the illicit as we were going in, my, my buddy and I. And uh watching it, I think I knew I was watching something I shouldn't know, but I was also confronted with this possibility. It was like a portal that there was a whole world of movies out there that I was maybe not allowed to see, but look at how amazing they are. Look at the gunfire and the the beautiful women and the tough men. I was particularly drawn to the Eddie Murphy character in 48 Hours for, you know, maybe not obvious reasons. He's obviously the the energy, the lifeblood of that film. But there's something about Eddie Murphy and the way that he handles the racism, that really spoke to me, even as a nine year old. Although I wouldn't be able to articulate it, and maybe still are not able to articulate it as well as I'd like to. But there's something about how he is not surprised, I guess, by the racism and has instead learned to use the way that other people see him against the people that choose to only see him in that way. I'd like something to drink,
1: preferably
2: some vodka. You best have a black Russian. <laughs> black Russian, you have
0: said black Russian. That's a funny joke, I get it. I'm black, no, that's, that's funny.
4: No, I just rather have plain old vodka, that'd be nice.
3: People are constantly surprised by Reggie Hammond uh, throughout the course of 48 hours, and that's because they, they they don't see him as smart, they don't see him as able, they don't uh, they judge him instantly based on what he looks like and what he sounds like and how he chooses to act, and uh, it's to their own detriment. It's sort of the uh, cloak that he uses to be powerful. And I never thought of my race. I'm 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 Asian American. I'm, I, my my parents were Chinese. I was born in Colorado. I never thought of my race as an advantage until i saw 48 hours and so in in more than just the illicit sense it was a uh, watershed for me to see Mm -hmm. that film at nine years old
2: yeah yeah i can imagine it would be yeah how did 48 hours end up becoming what you've described as this edgy even dangerous conversation about race and and identity in america
3: well i think that has a lot to do with walter hill and he would balk i'm sure at the idea that he's progressive in some way, not because he's not or he doesn't agree with progressive principles, but just because I don't think he he th- thinks of himself that way. I I think what you get in Walter Hill's films is a guy who's very open eyed, very clear eyed about the way that the world is. And so that he looks at a police station and he sees diversity. Of course, there's a lot of diversity. But as we've learned in the worst possible ways, even recently, it doesn't really matter what color your skin is. When you become a cop, you become part of a system that's perhaps biased. And so you you become the upholder of a biased system, no, no matter what your background is. And Hill understood that all the way back in 1982. He said, hey, um, f- funny thing, when this police captain played by Frank When the police captain's black, he's still racist against African-Americans somehow. And this is a thing that, you know, that conversation is a conversation that we are still having in the United States. We're still having this conversation. How could this be? How could it happen this way? How could this be corrupt this way? A few bad apples. And no one ever completes the few bad apples aphorism, which is spoils the entire batch. But he, he gets it. And not in a way that's judgmental, not in a way that you ever feel like you're, you're being, be, being, being preached to, but in a way that's just very open-eyed about it and says, this is just the way it is. This is the way the men talk to each other.
1: Me and some of my friends hit a dealer during a sale. It's the kind of money nobody reports stolen. One of the guys turned around and
2: dropped a dime on me. Happens to be the same guy that's running around shooting people with a certain cop's gun.
4: So he's after your money.
2: You know, you're a real bright cop. You know that, Jack? So how much you want, man, huh? Huh? What, you want to split 50-50? Not likely, convict. Oh, I can't have nothing now, right? I believe in the merit system. So far, you ain't built up no points, boy. Oh, well, then I'll be
1: real good from now on, Mr. Cates. Tell me where the goddamn money
3: is. The use of racial invective in 48 Hours and, and many of his other films during this period is extraordinary because it's it's not only the way that that these men are, are needling each other, starting fights with each other, but it's also the way that they're becoming friends. You know... My best friends in the world, I say the worst things he can think of to my best friends that I've had since, since first grade. I call them names, I used to call them. I, I make fun of them at that time in second grade that he threw up. You know, these things are part of the way that we make friends as men and also part of the way that we fight as men. We, it It's all part of this thesis, I think, that Hill has that men are essentially violent. Men are essentially uh, uh, born of this place of conflict. And men are only taught in our society to express themselves in certain ways. It's not okay for guys to cry in our society society or hold hands or hug or, or, or give each other kisses on the cheek. We're not allowed to do that. We are allowed to be angry, to, to, to be rageful, to swing, to have a good right hook. And so, you know, within 48 hours there there's even this expression of respect between the two of these guys, Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy, um, Jack, Jack and Reggie, they express their love for each other ultimately through this uh, uh, big fight in the middle of the street. And even at the end of the fight that Reggie was about to win, Jack says, "You know what? When I write up the report, I'm going to say that I won."
2: That's what you tell him down at the station house tonight. Yeah, right. I even put it in my report that way. Yeah, I bet you will.
3: Because he's reasserting his power institutionally over Reggie, over over his black friend, if you want to call him that, convict. But you know, at, at, at the end of the day, it's not really 48 Hours. is not about it. It's not. It's been called the the prototypical buddy comedy, but it's neither the first nor is it a, 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 about friends? They're not friends at the end of this movie. They're, if anything, kind of co-conspirators. They're, they're, they're still on the opposite sides, and they always will be. <laughs> they always will be. And, and there's, there's no real bridging of that racial gap. Now,
1: Jack, Now, the both of us know,
2: I'm going to be an honest man from now on, right? Good. But if I did decide to be a
1: thief... What makes you think you can catch me?
3: Can I have my lighter back, Reggie? <laughs> that's the tragedy of it, I think. And that's the tragedy of a lot of Walter Hill's movies is that at the end of the day, you know, Moses doesn't get to go to Canaan. Um, hmm. Ethan Edwards doesn't get to come in with the rest of his family and the searchers. At the end of the day, the very qualities. That allow these violent men to create society, just like Seth Bullock and, and Deadwood, the pilot of which uh, Walter Hill also directed. The very qualities that m- allow men to make society do not make men good for society. You know, all of these violent heroes that create the world have to leave at the end of it. And, and I say create the world, but it's not a great world. I'm not. It's not. That's not praiseworthy. I'm just saying, the world that we have has been created by violent men who are then sort of dismissed for being violent, and that's the. Irony and the tragedy of being a man. I think.
2: Mm-hmm. Very well said. I find that interesting that you said just a few a minute or so ago that men are allowed to be angry, and I wonder. Well, is that something? It makes me wonder. With all, all the toxic masculinity we see, is that something that shouldn't be allowed? Like, would we be better off if men weren't allowed to be angry?
3: Well, you know, I I I, I think anger is part of a great stew, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. you know, you can't have a stew that's only made of of of, of, of carrot. You know that's just carrot water. Uh, if you yeah. want to make a, a, if you want to make a stew, you have to have a balance of everything. You, you can't have one element that overwhelms every other element. And I think, it, it, you know, it, 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 if you're making a boy in in the in this culture, and that that, that was a huge question for me uh, when I became a father, uh, is that. What do I do? Do do I raise my boy the way that I was raised, very closed off emotionally and and not not able to tell anybody that I love them? And, you know, do do I do that or do I do something different? And I lean on, express yourself, cry. It's okay. Be frustrated. It's fine. But we need to find different emotions for you to begin to navigate through the world so that you become a, a good citizen of the world and you, you don't sort of mash down any one emotion in favor of any other emotion. I'm not sure anger is a bad thing. You know, I, I think, and I think if anger is the only choice, it's a very bad thing, <laughs> you know, just, just like if, if only love, if there was only love, I think that's also a bad thing. And, you know, a lot of yeah. our movies make fun of that. So there has to be kind of a balance of, of like, look, it's okay, man, for you to be angry, but put it aside. And now let's kind of turn on like these different emotions and these, di- these, these, different strategies for uh, dealing with the world, which will uh, invariably make you angry and frustrated. That's what the world does. But how do you deal with that? You have to be able to deal with it, I think, in more ways than just anger. And that's what Hill kind of examines, I think, in a lot of his movies. There are very violent men, and the only way that the violent men ever make out is through a violent end. But there are also yeah. other men that give you a different kind of example for a possibility of, uh, of uh-huh. comporting yourself in the world.
2: Yeah, and let's let's stay away from the carrot water. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah. You describe a key scene in Forty Eight Hours that you say defines the film and defines Eddie Murphy. Can you tell us about this scene?
3: well what what made him a star and the other one i think defines the film and the th- the scene that made him a star is the scene in torchies the real redneck bar with a confederate flag and everything and in the middle of san francisco so it's kind of a fancy but he, he goes to this, this this redneck bar and he sort of dresses down everybody in there and he he yells at them and he call, call, calls them all the names that i think every minority group in the country would love to call a bunch of white people and so uh he he it, it, it's a huge moment because it's such a Unexpected moment, I think, in in American film in in the 80s. We did a lot of that stuff in the 60s and 70s, but less so in the blockbuster era. And so, you know, that's the moment that Eddie Murphy becomes a star. I think the key film, the key moment that that defines the film for me, anyway, is when uh, Jack tries to apologize. To Reggie in in another bar in a black bar across the town, and says, you know, hey man, all that stuff that I was calling you, all all those invectives, you know, and he, he names the invectives. I didn't mean those things. I was just trying to keep you down. I was just doing my job, keeping you down. Hey, well, doing your job don't explain everything, Jack. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> And then Reggie doesn't accept his apology, doesn't accept the olive branch. He says instead, yeah, you know, some things you can't just excuse by, uh, uh, you know, you can't excuse that. It's not just doing your job. And, and Jack agrees. He's like, yeah, you're right, man. And that for me is like a, 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 a thunderclap moment. And the way that we must and should uh, 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 talk about race in the United States is to say that, you know, let's begin with this baseline of things are unacceptable. And then we can move forward. But you know, I- instead, what we usually do, how we usually argue about these things is say, it doesn't exist, racism versus it does exist. And we can never get to a place where we can actually begin to solve these problems unless we get to the baseline that 48 Hours represents, which is to say, yeah, some things are just not okay. Some things are by their nature inequi- inequitable. How do we move forward?
2: Mm-hmm. And the Torchy sequence almost didn't make it into the final cut of the film, why?
3: That's right, uh, because it, it is such a tight tightrope. You know, you don't want to fall off on the one side where the audience suddenly realizes that they're the ones being indicted uh, in large part by this. And then you also don't want to fall off into a part where Eddie Murphy is made to look ridiculous. You know, the, the this whole idea that you become uh, left at rather than left with. And so how do you give him this power? It was just a very difficult uh, road, I, I think, for, for them to walk on. And so they, they tested it a couple of times and, and one screening audience hated it and the next screening audience loved it. And in the at the end of the day, uh, Hill and Larry Gross said, you know what, let's just go for it. And it became such a huge scene, such a huge cultural moment, really, that p- people, uh, I don't know, com- completely remember or appreciate that uh, we knew about that scene before we even saw the movie as, ni- as third graders. We were talking about, oh, there's a scene in this movie it's so funny. It's that guy from Saturday Night Live. It's so funny. Hmm. What is it? Uh, it's so funny. Trust me. None, <laughs> none of us had seen it, but you know, we would. We knew about it. It was legend already. And so, uh, by the time we did see it, by the time we were watching it in the theaters, people were beginning to laugh as when they saw the torchy sign. When they knew that the scene was coming up, there was sort of a buildup to it. You could feel it in the in the theater. And then, as the scene was going, people would laugh hard enough. It was like the uh, stories that came out of the early screenings of Some like It Hot. Um, they were laughing and drowning out a lot of the dialogue. And so people would see it multiple times so that they could get the whole scene.
2: All right, listen up.
1: I don't like white people. I hate rednecks. You people are rednecks.
3: It was a huge moment. Um, and, and so, again, 48 Hours is remembered by people as as a comedy, as a knockdown. Oh, man, I love that movie. I remember seeing that movie. It was really hilarious. What they don't remember is all the rest of it, which is not funny. And it's barely funny uh, now. It, it's really about this tense relationship, this tense racial relationship, this violent crime film. Um, it, it's a lot of things, but a comedy, it's not. And a movie about friends, it's not. And I think, you know, again, Hill's movies are misremembered in the, in the rear view because they they sort of push that pleasure center. And we don't remember exactly all the reasons that we love it. Uh, just that, oh, the, the the shooting was great. That's never the reason that you go to a Walter Hill movie. Um, that's never never the reason
2: Walter Chow thanks so much for another fascinating Walter on Walter
3: thank you so much for having me Doug it was a real pleasure
2: Walter Chow is a film critic and the author of a Walter Hill film find out more about Walter Walter, and 48 hours at wpr.org slash beta well that does it for this edition of beta thanks to our guests Sarah Rosetter, Christine Potter, and Walter Chow.
4: They have a lot of zany stuff on this program, don't you think?
2: Beta is available to follow on
4: Spotify or wherever
2: you catch your favorite thoughts. Don't forget to offer a rating or to share with new alphas. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio Center. Red Beat Productions. Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcher.
4: You might be a little more of a team player and a little less of a hot dog on this one.
2: Our executive producer, nay, showrunner, is Adam Friedrich.
4: I want the rest of you cowboys to know
2: something. There's a new sheriff in town. And thanks to you, our alphas. More beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon.
3: I'm going to tell you something about this man. He's got more brains than you ever know.